Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. I am very happy this morning to welcome um, my guest, Kevin Rippa. Kevin is a computer um, computer consultant, a computer expert, and the owner of Computer Evidence Recovery Incorporated. Uh, hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm very good, Francie. Thanks for having me. Oh, I've, I'm delighted. And I know this morning we're going to be talking about computer threats, ransomware, phishing, and all those kind of things. And for those of you out there that think you're not at risk, well, be surprised because we all are at risk, aren't we, Kevin? Well, we certainly are. Many uh, many large corporations uh, in North America and around the world pay millions and millions of dollars every year for the security in their networks, and they still get compromised. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we kind of think, oh, who am I? I'm a little guy just sitting here in my house or my office with my computer, and who cares about me? But what happens? Well, that's a very common misconception in in the computer world, Uh, whether it be someone at work, whether it be somebody at home, is that, and, and I hear this all the time, I don't have anything on my computer that I'm worried about losing or that I'm worried about somebody getting. But that, in <laughs> that the is until, you, until it happens. <laughs> exactly right. Until it happens, uh, and, and then you feel violated, just as though your house got broken into. But mm. the, the vast majority of cases are such that the 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 person trying to get into your computer, or what we will call evil, uh, is uh, they don't want the information on your computer. They want access to the processing power of your computer so that they can leverage it along with thousands of other like-minded computers, shall we say, to perform an enhanced attack against a larger entity. Okay, so what does that mean? How how does that work? If I want to attack a company, uh, for example, uh, let's pick widgets.com because I don't want to single out a known entity. Mm-hmm. So we'll say that widgets.com is a, a very large company online that sells uh, all kinds of items. They're a major online shopping business. Now, uh, I have a bone to pick with them, or I have a reason to uh, want to attack them and affect their business. Well, I can't do that from one single computer. They have uh, a big pipeline for their bandwidth. In other words, uh, the Internet connection to their facility is very, very large to handle uh, you know, thousands of people shopping at once. So my little home Internet connection is not going to negatively affect them in any way. So in order to do that, I need to have a whole bunch of home computers uh, all interacting with that widgets.com computer at once. So I will send out... Uh, 
malicious code uh, in, say, an email or some other way that we'll discuss shortly. And if I can get you to install that on your computer, even though you didn't know you did it, I now control your computer. Well, if I can do that with a thousand computers, then I can control a thousand computers with my one piece of software that we call C2 software. Uh, that stands for command and control software. I will use that so that at a time of my choosing, I will now send an instruction to all thousand computers to all perform the same type of request over and over again against the widgets.com website. The way that computers okay. work is that they cannot ignore requests that are made of them. They have to respond to those requests before they can move on to the next function. So it's like walking through a forest. If you're walking through a forest, it's very quiet and you don't have to stop walking. But if every tree in the forest starts saying, hello, Fancy, and you have to stop and answer that hello, Fancy, before you can take another step, well, if a thousand trees are all saying hello, Fancy, you're not going to be able to get very far. So other, than, other than the fact that trees are talking to you, that could be a problem as well. <laughs> Oh, there, there's something wrong with saying. that? Oh, my. <laughs> so, so in the case of widgets.com, when you have a thousand computers all talking to the one computer and sending it instructions over and over again, it can't do anything else while it's processing those instructions. And so this is what is called the denial of service attack. We have denied widgets.com service. And so now it can't huh. conduct business. Now, this can be done uh, against a, a normal company uh, that just does normal business. You know, we don't realize how much we use the Internet until it goes down. And so if you've Why got not? a company running and somebody launches a denial, a denial of service attack against you, now your corporation can't use uh, the Internet for that time. Or how about let's take it one step worse. I infect one computer inside your uh, corporate network. It in turn mm-hmm. infects a bunch of other computers in your network, and now I use your network to attack somebody else's network. Wow. So, all right, so how is that different than ransomware? Well, the denial of service uh, attacks and that little bit of software are relatively easy to remove from your computer if you know that they're there, and they typically don't affect any of the data on your network. Mm-hmm. Ransomware is different. Ransomware is a piece of malicious software that's delivered to your computer. And again, we'll talk about it shortly. But it's delivered to your computer. And once it's on your computer and established, it will create something called a back channel, back to, we'll call it the mothership. And as soon as it creates that connection, the mothership will send some more code up the line to the computer that's been infected with encryption keys. And it will now start in the background of your computer to encrypt all of the user data on the computer. And it not only, much of the ransomware not only affects the data on your computer, it will also look on your computer for network shares to other computers. So if you're connected to a server at work, it will now go up that path to the server and start encrypting information there. If you have backups, 
to things like uh, you know sites like Carbonite or Backblaze or or, or a uh, NAS device within your network or some type of third-party backup. It will look for those connections and it will try to travel along those channels and encrypt those backups. Once it has completed its task and it's encrypted all of the information it wants to encrypt, it will then put a message up on the screen of your computer letting you know that you've been hit with ransomware. And there's a number of different creative ways that it does that, including an audible alarm on your, on your computer that will go off once it's ready. And it will hmm. tell you that you've now been hit with ransomware and you have to follow these steps in order to pay the ransom so that your files will get unlocked so that you can use them again. So you mentioned third-party backups. So, so um, a third-party backup that are the commercial backups, like say um, Carbonite, are they protected? Yeah. Well, they should be connected. They should be protected, but there's only so much they can do. If your if your um, if your computer gets infected and it affects your data sitting on a third-party server. It's not really their fault, and there's not a lot that they can do about it because understand that in order to protect against ransomware, uh, outside of the obvious, stop clicking on things, uh, once the process starts, how can we stop that? Well, we have to, the computer has to figure out a way to identify the mass encryption of files all at once. Now, when you're talking about your third-party backup solutions, their sole purpose in life is to encrypt your data while it's being backed up so that it's protected against hackers. So mm. if, if it's being encrypted through the normal course of business or it's being encrypted in a different way by ransomware, the third-party vendor really would ha- doesn't have a way of detecting that necessarily. And so it's not really their fault. The idea is that you need to have multiple backups, uh, multiple versions of backups, you need to detect it on your system while it's happening and stop it before it gets a foothold. Uh, you know, it, the first thing that somebody should do if they know that they've been hit with ransomware is disconnect the computer from the network entirely. And then that way the ransomware can't reach out through network shares and to third-party mm-hmm. vendors to start encrypting the data there. Mm-hmm. It's... <laughs> it's scary having having just gone through uh, seven months ago a, a big hacking that has um, destroyed <laughs> most of my personal life. Uh, this is this is scary stuff. I mean, it really uh, it's amazing. Well, it is, but the you know the, the interesting thing that I find, and, and maybe it's easy for me to say, sitting in the cybersecurity world, <laughs> right. but it's. For me, it's it's not hard to guard against. It's actually quite easy to protect against, but people are unaware of what to do or how to do it, and they don't. People don't think the same way when they're using a computer as they think in the real world. In the real world, if a complete and utter stranger walked up to you in the street and said, "Listen," My brother is a Nigerian prince, and he's laying in a hospital dying right now, and he's got $22 million that he will share with you if you help him get it out of the, out of the country. What would your reaction be? You would say, get away from me, you crazy person. Exactly. But yet when we get that email on a computer, 
we can't, we just thank our lucky stars. Wow, I just hit the big time. Somebody's going to share $22 million with me. And it's simply not the case, but that is an incredibly uh, effective method, even to this day, people fall victim to exactly that every single day. And we need to understand better how we manage our our email and our online presence, uh, how we manage the things that we do. So, for example, the the largest, uh, most effective vector into a a, a computer to compromise it is through email. And it's through something specifically called a phishing email. Now, there's different levels of phishing emails, and I'll describe the lowest level first. The lowest level of a phishing email is one that will be sent to a million email addresses. So maybe five or 600,000 will actually be valid email addresses. And out of those five or 600,000, if, I mean, at, at 500,000, if we can get 1% of people to click on that link, just 1%, we've infected 5,000 computers. That's mm-hmm. pretty significant for not having to do any work. Now, in that phishing email, uh, what will happen is the email will describe a scenario. It will either be that somebody wants to share money with you or that somebody wants to buy the product that you sell or, uh, quite frankly, that your bank account's been uh, locked because of odd activity and you need to click here to unlock your bank account or your credit mm-hmm. card or your FedEx account. And as soon as people click, they don't realize that that's, that's the end of the game. So some of these emails will have attachments, and the expectation is that you're going to open the attachment to see what is, what's going on. Uh, some of them will just have uh, website links in them. And mm-hmm. the, the idea is that you'll click on the link, you'll go to the website, and uh, once you hit the website, it is now installing malicious software onto your computer in the background that you're unaware of. Now, I might add, that all of this activity will typically bypass any antivirus programs that you have just because of how antivirus programs work. And that's, that's another often misunderstood part of computers is mm-hmm. people think that uh, an antivirus program is a panacea, and, and it's really not. Uh, an antivirus program can only stop malicious software that it has previously been made aware of. That's why each day your computer downloads updates from your antivirus program. Okay. Uh, it, what those updates are is once they find out about new viruses, they write a, a, a profile for them, and now your, pro, your antivirus program downloads these new profiles, these updates, so it now knows about this new virus. But if I write a virus specifically for you, Francie, and I don't use a previously existing antivirus that it, or a virus that exists, and I send it to you, your antivi- you can have five antivirus programs, which isn't recommended, by the way, uh, and none of, them, <laughs> none of them will detect that virus because they okay. can only detect something that they know about. So that's phishing. Now, Francie, if I want your computer specifically, mm-hmm. so I do a bunch of, of recon. I go online, I... I do some uh, open source intelligence gathering on you, and I find out stuff about you to the point where I can now craft an email and send it to you and have you believe that I must know you. So that offers validity to my email. That's called mm-hmm. spear phishing. I am now, I am now 
targeting my phishing attack against a specific person or entity. Now, if you're the CEO of a large company and I target you specifically, that is now called whaling because you're the big whale. <laughs> and I don't know who comes up with these names, Francie, but... <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Wait, so we have okay. to we have to educate our users uh, on how to detect phishing attacks and how to guard against triggering them. I cannot overstate uh, how often compromises are caused by this. Uh, I would say ninety percent plus of compromised computers are compromised through phishing emails. Okay, Kevin, we need to take a really quick break I, before we get into this. This is a good, good time. So we'll be right back with Kevin Rippa. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Listening to computer expert Kevin Rippa, and today we're talking about computer threats. And Kevin, before we get into that, let's let's talk a little bit about your background. So people that haven't uh, ever heard you speak before or gone to a, a seminar you've given know a little bit more about you. So, how did you get your background? Well, I your, started out uh, as uh, as a normal private investigator uh, in much the same. As, as any private investigator works, I did uh, surveillances and, and investigations and things like that. And uh, uh, very early on, I decided I wanted to branch out into an area that uh, there was nobody in. And that, at the time, uh, you know, a little over 20 years ago, was uh, computers. 
And I started out simply uh, uh, tracing emails, learning how to trace emails to their source, and uh, which proved to be a great investigative tool. And then it, uh, it advanced into digital forensics and digital investigations, and uh, then into cybersecurity. And I have uh, done work all around the world for many corporations, law firms, governments. Uh, I've been qualified as an expert in every level of court in North America except the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and that's probably only a matter of time. So, uh, and I also I'm an instructor for the Sands Institute, which is the largest uh, cybersecurity uh, training institution in the world. Wow, pretty good credentials, Kevin. So, um, so you are, as I mentioned earlier, you're the owner of Computer Evidence Recovery Incorporated. So while we're talking about it, why don't you give your website and a way to contact you in case people have uh, more questions than we can answer on the show? Well, you can visit the website at www.computerpi.com or reach out via email, kevin at computerpi.com. Okay, cool. And you're the past president of the Alberta Association of Private Investigators, and that's Alberta, Canada, by the way, folks. <laughs> yeah, Not Alberta, and currently vice president. Oh, and vice president. Okay, good. And um, so when you started out, you just said you, you st- just started exploring email. Is, was that a difficult educational process? What was that about? Well, we have to think back to mid to late 1990s. And there, there was no computer investigation or forensic-style training being offered anywhere. Uh, it was it, the notion that you could trace an email back to the sender was unheard of. And so even when myself and, uh, and a colleague of mine, Brian Ingram, were, were uh, going through all of this, there was times where we would even call uh, the hosts of web servers to ask them or mail servers and say, we're seeing this line in a set of email headers. What does that mean? And they would argue with us that we're even seeing it. Well, that's not possible. And, mm-hmm. you know, the argument would ensue. So a lot of it was trial and error. A lot of it was testing and just, uh, just being self-taught, looking at data and uh, deciphering what it meant. Nowadays, it would be much more difficult to do that simply because there is so much more data and so much more uh, complexity of data than ever was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Kevin, does your expertise cross over into cell phone technology as well? Uh, it sure does. Uh, pretty much anything that will hold digital information. We've done fax machines. We've done answering machines. Certainly cellular devices. We've done GPS devices. We've investigated uh, Apple Watches. We've investigated uh, uh, a case we just finished up recently was a... Uh, a trip computer from a bicycle. Uh, and hmm. so if it, holds, if it holds data, and quite frankly, the client's got the money, we're happy to investigate it. Sure. Interesting. You know, and, and I can't say enough, having experienced this myself, how much you depend on the computer and the Internet in your daily, every day, every minute operations. <laughs> Well, and that's very true. Internet connections, cellular connections, they are our lifeline to the world now. In fact, in eastern Canada, they just had an issue a few days ago with one of the major cell phone providers' backbones going down. 
And so there was no cell service, no internet service. This took down, you know, tens of thousands of cell phones, businesses that use uh, cellular technology to process credit card payments, uh, had to close their doors. Uh, it, it's certainly far more pervasive than, than uh, we realized. Mm-hmm. For sure. It really, it really is amazing. And, and really, that's why this whole thing that we've been talking about for the last few months about Russia and th- their cyber intervention is really serious when you think about there could be an actual threat into this country or into any of our computer systems that run this country, um, meaning the United States, by the way, <laughs> not, not Canada, <laughs> the United States. <laughs> uh, it, no, it's, and it's daunting. It, it is interesting that, uh, you know, this, this threat exists and this is the new, um, the, the new cyber warfare or the new warfare is cyber. When you look at, at, you know, fighter pilots, for example, the United States military now has more pilots, drone pilots, than actual uh, fighter aircraft pilots. Hmm. And drone pilots never leave, uh, you know, a desk in the United States, and they're flying drones all around the world. And so, you know, with the Russian uh, hacking, with, with hacking around the world, I mean, make no mistake, the uh, United States is and Canada are hacking out just as much as they're getting hacked in. It's Mm -hmm. just the way of the world now. But you're absolutely right uh, uh, to consider that a country or just somebody with an axe to grind decides to take over Mm -hmm. a power plant Mm -hmm. and say, we're going to shut the lights off unless you pay us ransom. We're going to take down a nuclear facility if if you don't pay our ransom. And this actually happened in Brazil a couple of years ago, and they didn't believe it, and the lights got turned out. Mm-hmm. We see ransomware affecting hospitals constantly. And when you can hack into uh, hospital computers that control life support systems, uh, MRI machines, and you send a ransom note that says the next person you put in your MRI machine is going to die if you don't pay our ransom, so hospitals are paying the ransom. They're paying huge amounts of money in ransom. Yeah, actually, I was at a, a legislative hearing in Sacramento, California, when a hospital from L.A. testified that they had been hit by ransomware and how serious it was. So it is a real threat. I mean, it's it's true to life every day, uh, real threat. So we were talking about fishing, spear fishing, whaling, and I don't know, sharking. Is that another one? <laughs> or I just made it up. I haven't heard that one, but that's a good one, I think, to to keep in reserve, just in case. Just in case, yeah. So, let's talk about fishing. Um, Okay. One of the questions that I read that that you wrote, and I think it's a really good question, is how do they get my email to begin with? So, let's start there. Well, the the list is very, very lengthy as to where the email addresses come from. When we talk about uh, everything we do online, most any websites you're going to go to and do anything on wants your email address. Uh, mm-hmm. And most of it's collected for marketing. Uh, Facebook, Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, these aren't companies, and, and this is very, very important for people to understand. Um, when you get something for free, you are no longer the customer. You are the product being sold. And so... People need to understand that Facebook, Twitter, 
Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, they do not exist for your personal convenience and for your personal social uh, schedule. They Mm -hmm. are businesses that exist to make money. They don't make money from you because the product they give to you is free. They make money by selling all of the information they collect. And some of the information they're collecting is your email address. That's one way. Another way exists when if you use weak passwords, someone can hack your Gmail account, Facebook account, Twitter account, and collect your address book. And now they have that many more email addresses. Another mm-hmm. way it's connected is you send an email and instead of sending it, you know, creating a proper uh, contact list uh, or group to send an email to, you just add 100 emails into an email, uh, email address into an email so that when you send that email, there's 100 email addresses in plain view. And then the, one of the people, one of the hundred people that receives it hits reply all, and now they're out there again. And these email addresses are getting harvested off of servers, off of news groups and listservs. There's just no end to of places where your email address can get harvested. Many websites you go to uh, download this article. All you have to do is give them your email address. And so mm-hmm. you do, and now it's on a list. So, which brings up a question, uh, Kevin, about the various email lists that professional associations have. Are those easily hackable? Well, I wouldn't say that they're. I wouldn't say that they're hackable necessarily. But I have seen instances where people uh, on, you know, in the large association listserv have sent an email out to everybody on the listserv uh, without. You know, what they've done is they've, hired, they've gathered the email addresses from each person within the database, which anybody can do online, and mm-hmm. created this, this list of people and then sent an email out to all of them, and they're all listed in the CC line of the email. And then somebody at the other end replies all and says, who sent this? Now that hundred of those association emails are floating around again. So they're not any more secure than any other email address. The chances that they're getting hacked, uh, when that does happen, is low. Usually the email addresses are being collected because of just improper management, improper usage. So if you were going to do something like that, you would blind copy those people instead of listening in a CC line? Well, that is one way. Um, But a more common way is to, uh, in your address book, you create a group. And inside that group, you add all of the email addresses that you want to send the email to. And you can name that group anything you want. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've ever mm-hmm. seen an email that, that comes you know, from Kevin Reaper to Kevin Reaper, but obviously through the text, it's going to a great number of people, that's simply because I named my email address group Kevin Reaper. You see I undisclosed see. recipients all the time. That's the same thing. You created a group called it Undisclosed Recipients, added 100 email addresses to it, and then when you sent your message, the world sees undisclosed recipients. It doesn't see all of the actual email addresses. That always happens in the background. Okay. Okay. That's a good, good suggestion. So, so how do you protect yourself? Well, one word, education. Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. There is no, oh, I'll download this program and it will keep me safe. 
education is number one. Uh, people need to understand the technology that they're using. In a perfect world, uh, I would mandate that anybody who is being hired uh, by any company that will use a computer within that company needs to have some kind of a computer certification. Now, I know that sounds scary, but I don't mean they have to go to school for two years to get a computer degree. Mm-hmm. What I mean is, right now, when you uh, get a job, let's say in the oil field, for example, there are certain uh, certifications you need to have. You need to have an H2S, and you need to have first aid, and maybe you need to have CPR. You know, these small half-day or full-day trainings that prepare you for the workplace you're going into. But yet, mm-hmm. nothing exists for computers. And so we let the average citizen sit down in front of arguably the most technologically advanced piece of equipment ever designed for human consumption and let them bang away on it like they're experts, and they're not. So maybe what we need to do is start the education ball rolling by having, say, something called a B-plus, we'll call it, because A-plus is already taken. We'll call it a B-plus. You have to take a half day or one day of computer security training. And honestly, what people need to know that would take away 95% of the exploits out there could be addressed in a half day's worth of training. And so now companies need to say, if you don't have a B-plus certification, in other words, if you haven't taken this half day of training, we're not going to hire you because we're going to put you in front of a computer in our network, which gives you access to our entire network. And Mm -hmm. so we have to do that in a responsible manner. So education, how to identify a phishing email. Uh, If you see an email coming to you from your bank, Bank of America, Mm -hmm. is it addressed specifically to you or is it just a a random name that it's it's addressed to? Um, Where did it come from? Check the email address that it came from. Does it come from someone in Bank of America or did it come from you know, some weird email address that you can't even understand. When mm-hmm. you look at the contents of the email, um, there's always going to be a call to action. In other words, something in the email that wants you to click on something, whether it be an attachment or a link. Well, if it's an mm-hmm. attachment, look at what the attachment is. Malicious software comes very frequently in zip files, so .zip. If you get an email with an attachment, that is titled .zip, and you didn't specifically request something like that from someone, don't click on it for any reason. There's no good reason for anything attached to your email to be in a zip format. So just plain don't click on it. Mm-hmm. But people have to know. I need to know. <laughs> They'll click on, on links in an email. Well, this looks like an Amazon uh, purchase, and I didn't make an Amazon purchase. My gosh, what is this? So they've got to click to see what it is. And once they click, it's done. The, 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 the badness has happened. I do a demonstration in one of my lectures uh, called a credential stealing demonstration. And I will I'll set up the hack in the room in front of people in real time just to show them how easy it is to set this up. And it takes me longer to describe it than it takes me to do it. And they're watching on the screen. They can see exactly what I'm doing. And then I will send a link to somebody in the room that's on their computer. And when they get the, the link, they'll click on it. And as soon as they click on it, 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 the evil is done. 
it's I am now connected to their computer, and I can do anything I want. In the case of a credential stealer, maybe it may be something like where they click on a link and they'll go to Google's login page. It's not really Google's login page, but it sure does look like it. In fact, that page is on my website, the evil website, and when you enter your username and password, I now have it. Now that I have your username and password, I will go to Gmail, the real Gmail, and I'll log in as you, and I will push down all of your email contents to a server of my choosing so that I can go through it at my leisure. So how do we guard against that? Well, when you look mm-hmm. at the link in an email, it will say something. Um, you know, nowadays very much it's words. Uh, uh, your purchase number is, and then it'll be a number that is a link. So you're going to click there to see what you bought. But if it's Amazon.com, don't click. Hover the mouse over the link. Don't click. After about a second, you're going to see an address show up on the screen, right on the screen, right where your mouse is, and it will mm-hmm. show you where that link is meant to go. So if, if this is a legitimate Amazon email, then when you hover the mouse, the link will come up, and it will say www.amazon.com and something else. That's legitimate. If it's not legitimate, it's not going to say Amazon. It's going to say something unintelligible or something that, you know, doesn't have Amazon in it. And so Mm -hmm. the best protection against that, no matter who it is, whether it's your bank, whether it's Amazon or Google or whoever, don't click a link in the email. And and you know what what happens, and I I see this with in my office all the time, we order things from Amazon. We may two or three times a week, maybe, because we order supplies from there. And so um, we, if we got a message from Amazon, for example, this hasn't happened. One, this is one of the things that hasn't happened. But if we got a link from Amazon, we would actually think that we'd, we'd order something because we do order from Amazon. So that's really a risk. It, it is a risk, but the easiest way to mitigate that risk is, you know, you've done enough legitimate transactions with Amazon to know how the emails come in. Mm-hmm. You get a confirmation of your order. You get a confirmation of shipping. That's it. If you get an email that, and, and in these Amazon emails, it's pretty clear what, the best, what you've purchased. So if you get an email from Amazon and you don't recognize it, don't mm-hmm. click anywhere in the email. Go online, log into your Amazon account, and look at it from that side. If there's a problem, you're going to see it there. But it's like PayPal. We see this all the time. And mm-hmm. people want to click the link because their PayPal account's been suspended. Mm-hmm. Well, don't click the link in the email. Go to PayPal.com and log into your account. If it's really been suspended, you're going to find out there. But people need to stop clicking in emails. Yeah, that's the best advice is to go directly to the site, I think. Mm -hmm. Because recently uh, I've seen some, besides the PayPal, which come all the time, uh, I've seen some FedEx um, emails that look like phishing to me and and, uh, haven't seen the Amazon, but it certainly makes sense. Well, and you know, it's, it's, uh, these things are very well done. And we say, geez, who would ever click on that? Well, that's easy to say if you get a phishing email from Bank of America and you don't deal with Bank of America. Mm-hmm. But if you do deal with Bank of America, it looks like a legitimate email. And your first mm-hmm. thought is, what do you mean my account's been locked out? 
I got to get some answers. We have to take a breath. We have to step back. We need to understand that first and foremost, your bank is not going to contact you by email in the case of a breach or a compromise. Mm -hmm. They just won't. They will phone you. And any bank or credit card that legitimately, and I had this happen with a credit card that will remain nameless, where I got the credit card and they sent me an email regarding what they suspected was a fraudulent transaction. And so I went through the normal means and I phoned them and they said, yeah, this has happened and we need to ask you about it. And I said, don't ever send an email. Computer uh, security experts are telling everybody that a bank would never send you an email like that, so don't click on it. And now you're sending emails like that, and why do they do it? To save money. They don't need as many people then, and that's going to lead further to the problems we have in computers. But education really, really is the answer. And people are too busy figuring out how to Google the Kardashians than than to actually learn how to use a computer securely, uh, sadly. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's Happens funny. too often. <laughs> All right. So you've mentioned something called a bot farm. Is that what you were talking about earlier, um, where they are gathering computer systems in one place? Is that a farm? Yes. Uh, if I need to collect, if I need to collect, uh, you know, uh, and, and I used a thousand computers in my example, but it goes into the tens and hundreds of thousands of computers. And, and, uh, mm. Yeah, so a bot farm is uh, a great number of computers that are all being controlled by the same software. And none of these computers know they're affected. And my software on their computers isn't going to negatively affect their computers in any uh, major way, so they'll never know anything is wrong until the day I decide to harness the collective power of all of those computers at once. So each one of those is called a bot. So a bunch of them is a bot farm, bot being short for robot. Uh, They're also referred to as as zombies or zombie net. Uh, But yeah, it's just me being able to, or somebody evil being able to control a multitude of computers uh, simultaneously. So let me ask you, if you went through, um, went through the programs that you have on your computer, could you identify that they've downloaded something that they're, they're like, like what you're talking about? Well, uh, the sad fact is that not usually. Uh, simply because, uh, I mean, from the perspective of a cyber investigator, could I see that? 100%. All day long, yeah. I could tell that your computer is compromised. But from the average user's perspective, no, you wouldn't. And even some of the telltale signs, you wouldn't immediately attribute to uh, malicious software. So your computer all of a sudden is, is going a lot slower than it used to. And I don't mean slowing down over the span of six months. I mean, yesterday it was running fine, and today it's running really, really slow. Uh, okay. So that would be an indication. Um, another, an, another way would be uh, to find out what programs are running when your computer starts up. So how do we do that? Well, that's beyond uh, the purview of this uh, show, but there's no reason you can't go Google that. Why can't you go to Google and say how, how to tell what programs are starting with your computer? Well, can't, in a Windows environment, couldn't you just go to your task manager? 
Well, you could go to your task manager, but here's a problem with that. If I inject the software, the, the malicious software, into a hidden file somewhere, you're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to see it. And if you see it, are you going to recognize it? Because many of these are set up not to run in, in auto run. They're set up to run in something called the task scheduler. And uh, so now if you go to your auto run programs to see what computers are starting with your computer or see what programs are starting with your computer, you're not going to see the malicious software because it's not running from there. It's running as a scheduled task in your task scheduler. So every time people get a little bit smarter with this, evil gets a little bit smarter than that. And they're always looking for ways. Now, from a, from a, a cyber investigator's perspective, we understand the concept that software can hide, but it has to run. So it, okay. it, it can hide from the average user, but it's not going to hide from a skilled cyber investigator. Having said that, we come back full circle to the same thing again. Education is number one. We have to stop it before it comes in. If it comes in, we have to be able to detect it. And if we don't detect it, we have to be able to detect it exfiltrating data from our network. Prevention is ideal, but detection is a must. Detection without response is useless. So I want to try to stop malicious software from getting into my computer. So I'll use antivirus program or a, a, a really great, and an antivirus program is not to be used by itself. That's, you know, opening the window and closing the door. So you run an antivirus program, and then you run an anti-malware program. And Malwarebytes is, hands down, the best software on the market to do that. So you run those two programs, uh, you know, together with each other. So prevention, you're going to try to stop it from coming in. If it comes in, you want to be able to have it detect evil that's happening. So if ransomware gets into your system and starts encrypting your files, you want to have some software on the inside detecting the mass encryption of all your files. Um, on the Mac side of the house, there's a program called Ransomware, and that's Ransom, W-H-E-R-E. Uh, and that's for the Mac side of the house. And it just sits in the background watching for the encryption of files. If it detects the hmm. encryption of files, it automatically blocks the encryption and sends you an alert. There are things on the Windows side of the house that do something functionally similar, but it's more difficult in Windows because of how Windows operating system files work. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but you have to search around for a solution that works for you. So now it has mm-hmm. to detect, and that's the detection phase. If something has already got in and it's doing something, you want to be able to detect it. When it detects something, you need to take action. Now, a great example is, uh, again, back to the phishing emails or the emails that are trying to deliver ransomware. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them will have a file attached to it that is uh, a Word document file. So the extension is .doc or it's a doc file. And you click on it and a message comes up on your screen that says that you need to enable macros to read this file. And this is very common. This is probably the number one method of delivery of ransomware. And so what does everybody do? They say, yes, 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 because we just want our stuff. Uh, so we click our agreement to everything rather than actually reading what it wants us to, to uh, agree to. And when it comes to these macros, there is no good reason at all, period, for the average user to have macros enabled. 
So if you see that pop-up, that is the detection method. Something has detected that something might be wrong. Do you want to do something about it? Well, if it got past your prevention mechanism, and then it got to your detection mechanism and, and said, hey, something bad is about to happen or something we don't know, maybe you shouldn't let this happen, and you still agree to it, well, now you've just compromised your detection system too. You've just told right. the computer it's okay for all this evil to happen. So at some point, it's the user that has to be uh, educated enough to know when to do what. Okay, so um, periodically you'll get a, a notification whether you should add an extension or not onto, say, uh, a, I guess a, something like Chrome or something like that. Is that the same kind of thing? Well, that's a, little bit, talking about? that's a little bit different, but that can be just as malicious. So okay. um, now web browsers are getting away from extensions because of the possibility of compromise. Uh, what I would say to that is if you're on a website and you don't typically visit that website and they want to put an extension, install an ins- extension to see mm-hmm. something on the website, don't do it. Just don't do it. The only yeah. time you should be installing extensions is when you know specifically what they're for and why. And if you don't and understand what, what the ex- And what are extensions for? Well, for example, uh, running Adobe Flash. Now, we see people say all the time, oh, you shouldn't run Flash. Well, the reality is that a lot of websites have it. And so as much as it's bad, you know, badness can be delivered with Flash, we're going to run Flash. So a mm-hmm. Flash extension would be a valid extension if you run a password manager. Uh, they typically have extensions into your browser. The point is understanding what the extension is for. If you don't know what that pop-up is saying, if it's saying it wants to install an extension, but you don't know if it's good or bad, Google the extension first. Go and do some research. What is that extension for? And if it's evil, there will be enough websites telling you this is evil, don't install it. Okay, so you mentioned password managers. What do you think of those? Well, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of password managers. Uh, right really? now, right now uh, password managers, well, right now passwords are the single Achilles heel into uh, many you know, email accounts and things like that. People are creatures mm-hmm. of habit. We use passwords over and over again on different sites. So if it gets compromised in one place, I have your credentials for every place. Passwords are never long enough. People will use passwords like password123. Or statistics have shown that men's passwords will typically control, uh, contain some derivative of the vehicle they drive. And women's <laughs> passwords will typically contain a derivative of their children's names and or dates of birth. And now this isn't everybody, but it's a large enough majority to be trackable. We don't want to use passwords like that. But at the same time, it does nobody any good to use passwords that are uppercase, lowercase, uh, special characters and digits and 20 characters long. Because nobody can remember that. So then we write it down so we can remember it, and now we've written it down for people to get. Here's what we want to do. There is one thing and one thing only that matters when it comes to passwords, and that is length. Length trumps all. If you have a 28-character password that is widely believed to be unhackable by anything, you cannot brute force that. Now, I'm not okay. saying have a password that's 28 characters long, but it should be at least 15 characters long. 
And so how do you remember that? Well, just like this. Jack and Jill went up the Eiffel Tower. Can you remember Mm. that? Anybody Uh can remember that. The sun will burn out before anybody's going to brute force that. So you have a password like that on your password manager, and now your password manager program creates its own internal 20-character passwords for every website you visit, and it's a different one on every website, every credential, every email, and then you have to remember one good one, and then it remembers the rest. I use a program called Dashlane, uh, and so I have a really great password to log into Dashlane, and then Dashlane uh, uh, remembers all my other passwords. I have 260-some-odd passwords. Not a single one is less than 20 characters long, and not a single one matches any other one. They're all unique and different. That is really good advice. That's really now, good advice. there is one other thing that you need to add when it comes to things like Gmail or PayPal or your banking site, two-factor authentication. Because okay. in the case of someone who takes over an Apple ID, for example, one of, the, one of the main ways they do that is they call Apple and they fool them into thinking that they're you. And now, it, maybe it's a, it's a question like, what was your first dog's name? Well, it's not hard to find that out or social engineer that from somebody. Now right. they've got it. If you have two-factor authentication, what happens, even if they have your username and password, if they log in from a computer that is not yours, you will now get an email that somebody just tried logging into your account. And it won't right. let them log in until you've authorized it. Okay. Kevin, I've got to cut you off. This is fascinating, but we're they're prompting me to that we're done. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is really good There's advice. There's not enough time, is there? <laughs> yeah, not enough time. But thank you so much for joining us, uh, Kevin. You, the information is invaluable. And to the rest of you, join me again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Kevin Ripa every Thursday morning. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good vacation. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.